please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And if we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Good morning, Midlands Church. My name is Bela Franklin. I'm one of the pastoral apprentices here at Midlands. And I have the opportunity to uh, teach through the, the last section of 1 John. Uh, we're looking at chapter 5, 13 through 21 today. And uh, so glad to, to be able to uh, get to speak with you today and, and share what I've been able to learn these last weeks looking into this passage. Um, so before we begin, I wanted to uh, go to the Lord in prayer. So if you would pray with me. Jesus, uh, it is... Definitely a strange thing to preach in this manner, Lord, but you uh, are good and sovereign through it, Lord. You, um, Lord, you, you know what might even transpire between when I'm recording this and when, when our body is hearing it. So, Lord, I ask that you would um, sovereignly act to, to make my words true, make them helpful, make them useful to this body, Lord. God, I ask that, uh, that you would help us to see your truth, Lord, that today, uh, by your Spirit, you would uh, shake from us the illusions of, of what we think we need or, or what we strive for, uh, but instead that we would marvel at a God who hears us, a God who hears our prayers, um, that we would align our prayers with your will, Lord. God, I, I ask that you would help us to believe your words today. Lord, uh, to digest them and rely on you as the source of truth. God, I pray that um, as we as a body go back to our normal routines on Monday, Lord, either work or, or just other weekly routines, Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, allow us to, to hold on to these truths that we look at today, Lord, that we wouldn't just turn off our TVs or computer screens after the service today and, and then forget about these things and go back to all the other things we're chasing that we think will give us satisfaction or happiness or or contentment, Lord, but that instead we would be challenged by John's words, Lord, that we would truly seek out the idols in our hearts and, and put them to death, Lord. I pray that you would, you would do that work in us, Lord, and that through this week we would continually be reminded of your truth, encouraged by it, and be reminding our brothers and sisters of these words too, Lord. God, I pray that you would help my words to be helpful to this body, that you'd strip away anything that's untrue or, or unhelpful that I've prepared to say, Lord, and that you would be glorified in this time. God, we pray this in your name. Amen. 
So, uh, as you all know, uh, Columbia sits at the confluence of the Broad and the Saluda River, and, uh, and that's no mistake. They are rivers that provide numerous benefits, and it's no surprise that many cities throughout the world are nestled right up against a river. And since before even the words of John were written 2,000, year, 2000 years ago, uh, people have found ways to harness the power of a river. One popular way of doing that in America has been through the building of low-head dams. And as the name suggests, these are short dams, usually one to five feet tall, and they can have multiple purposes. But generally, they help to deepen a river upstream from the dam. So that deeper water upstream is usually often uh, glassy still, almost like a lake, while the water below is, is generally a little bit more choppy, but due to the low height, only you know two to five feet, uh, it, it's not too threatening on the outside. It's pretty still. And these dams are all throughout the U.S. And while they're not as grand as the massive, huge hydraulic or hydroelectric dams like the Hoover Dam out west or, or others throughout the country, they're still fascinating. And, and they have a lot of use, a lot of history. And I think there's an, an aspect of these low-head dams that can help us grasp an important truth today. These dams are, again, all throughout the U.S., um, and I, I wanted to, to point out that there are several in South Carolina. In fact, there's one about 500 yards that way, right by our house, um, and, and I want to focus in on one that actually is up in, in Pennsylvania in a story from, from my home state. So David, he was a 24-year-old man who had recently returned home from serving as a Marine in Japan and Somalia. He saw action with the Marines during the Somalian conflict in the early 90s, and even survived a serious auto accident while stationed in Japan. At just 24 years old, David had walked through a lot, and his mother was eager to know the man her son had become now that he was finally back home in Pennsylvania. He was re-engaging with civilian life. He had a job at a nearby, nearby sawmill and was involved in his church and its leadership. But David also had friends that he was eager to reconnect with, and hobbies he, he looked forward to picking up again. He long enjoyed fishing and took the opportunity to fish the Susquehanna River with a friend near the Dock Street Dam, which is one of those uh, low-head dams I talked about that created a great fishing environment just below the dam. So they were in, in familiar territory, they uh, knew this river, they were um, at the river actually during a time where it was a drought season, so the river, though it's a mile wide, was uh, shallow enough to walk through virtually the whole thing. So David and his friend John were both seasoned swimmers, and David, of course, as a Marine, Marines know how to swim, and his friend was an experienced lifeguard. But as safe as they felt being downstream from this dam, they had no chance of being pulled over it if they fell, you know, they were downstream, couldn't fall down it. And there was, there was still a danger that they didn't know, that they didn't recognize. You see, low-head dams, while they appear still and glassy on the top and not too threatening, there's a danger in them. And the danger is, is, is largely in how safe they appear, how unthreatening they are. No one would think a dam of only two to four feet in height could be deadly, especially not to such experienced swimmers standing a considerable distance downstream. David's friend John would later say, 
We could both swim better than we could walk. We thought we were standing at staying far away enough from the dam. We didn't even consider it. We didn't even think it would matter. And they were waiting, uh, and as they were waiting across the river, David's friend started to be pulled upstream towards the dam. Then David lost his footing and started to drift as well. You don't usually anticipate being pulled up a stream or up a river. Within minutes, both men were fighting for their lives. The men became frantic. To quote John, he said, We were holding on each other's shirts, yelling at each other. We were yelling at each other to let go because we were pulling each other down under. Afterwards, John recalled being sucked under one last time. He said it got dark. I was just floating sideways. I said, please, God, don't let me die. I have a beautiful wife and a son. Don't let me die. Somehow John was freed from what's known as a hydraulic jump, which is a feature of low head dams where there's a back current coming off the top that will keep someone, keep a body or a mass in this rotation that turns and turns indefinitely. There's, there can be uh, times where, where bodies are, are found in there that have been in there for, for weeks and it's, it's difficult to retrieve them. It's a tragic feature of these dams. But somehow John was able to, to escape this. And John was able to get home to his family that day. But David was not. His mother didn't get to, to know the man that he was growing into. What appeared to be quiet, slow, and harmless was in fact devastatingly powerful and destructive. What seemed safe to David, what he failed to recognize as dangerous, having lived through so many other dangerous things, what seemed safe to him is the thing that took everything from him in a moment. So this is the type of danger that John uses his final words in this letter to warn us against. He warns us to keep ourselves from idols and to not be sucked in by what, it might, what might appear harmless, but really will ravage us and toss us and hold us down and pull the life from us. You see, John's purpose in this letter is that we would look to Jesus and that we would stand firmly on his promises, that we don't have to guess at his purpose in writing this book, because John is kind to, to clearly spell it out for us in verse 13. If you look, he says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Know that you have eternal life. Does that statement hit you? Have you marveled at that today, this week, this month even? Have you really looked at this assurance that we are to know that we have eternal life? Brothers and sisters, please delight in this truth. We are told to be confident in this truth that we have eternal life, that it's promised and guaranteed in Christ. Do you live in that confidence? Or is there some part of you that thinks or, or maybe feels that it's presumptuous to claim that we're certain that we are saved? That we are certain that we know that we are saved, and that we will be made new in new heaven and new earth with Jesus. Does it feel somehow more humble to allow a kernel of doubt maybe in your response to that question of where are you going when you die? I know for me that's a struggle. I, I often feel uncomfortable as if I'm boasting in something that I didn't earn, 
But that is the very point of the gospel. We stand firm and we boast and we point to Jesus, not because we've earned it. As a Christian, we have not earned this assurance, yet we have been given it by Jesus. And we should not be so foolish to boast in our obedience as a thing that saves us, because all of us know in our hearts that it's not our obedience, that we are not, in fact, as obedient as we project to our neighbors, and even based on what they see, we're not obedient enough. But instead, we're to hold firm and stand firm in this promise that Jesus offers us new life, and that through his blood, we have it. So as Christians, we do have this assurance of eternal life, and that's a great, great hope that we have. Um, But it's not just a distant thing. No, John immediately points to another confidence that we have that calls out action in our hearts and in our lives today. Verse 14, he tells us that the confidence that we have toward him, uh, that this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if anything, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. Have you ever asked in prayer for something that now looking back, you know it's better that God didn't do exactly what you asked? Have you ever seen him work through what seemed like an unanswered prayer at the time? I know I have. I've felt like God's not hearing me. He's not responding. And then maybe even years down the road, I look back and I see his goodness in not giving me what I asked. And incredibly, uh, this isn't just something we experience as as children, but we also see this in our, our foremost brother, Jesus. We see that Jesus himself pled with the Father. He asked in Matthew, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus brought his desire to his Father and submitted it to his Father's will. Jesus knew the pain that awaited him in the cross and asked for another way. But he remained faithful to walk in obedience even to death. And now, after after his endurance, after, after being faithful, Jesus is seated in his throne of glory. It is better to obey and follow and submit to the Father's will. Jesus gives us the perfect example of confidence in prayer. Now, confidence in prayer is not that we're confident that we will get what we ask, but confident that the one who we ask is wise and good to give and to take as he sees fit. Confidence is turning to the Lord and asking him to align our will with his, pouring out our requests so that we can trust him in today and tomorrow and the next day, knowing that he hears our requests, that he knows the things that we're struggling for, he knows the things that that we desire and that we are, are, are forming our desires to what he wants. We are, we're, as we are praying, we are asking that he shapes our heart in how we ask for a need, for healing, for good things, that we would still be submitting those to his will. But I, I do know that when I pray, I often lack confidence. I don't go to the Lord in this way because I know that I'm not fully submitting my prayers to the Lord. I'm holding on to my own will in my prayers. Are we asking the Lord for self-serving things? Is my lack of confidence in prayer a sign that I'm not actively submitting it to the Father's will? 
I think oftentimes it is a sign of that, that I'm not confident because I know that I'm holding on to it. I'm not truly trusting in him. So how can we pray earnestly? What are the things that should shape our prayers as a body? The word directs us in our prayers, and here John directs us in prayer, that our prayers would be confident in God's ability to act and certain that his will is supreme and worthy of trusting above our own. Now, that is an incredible truth, and the aspect of prayer is one that we as a body could sit in for a whole month just studying you know, sermon after sermon. But John is quick in this text to give us more direction in how we should utilize the amazing gift of having the God of the universe's ear each time we pray. I know for myself, I often, um, the, often the bulk of my prayer is made up of petitions for myself that I would grow in wisdom, that I would find contentment, that I would find my wallet and my keys uh, when I misplace them, for health and strength. These are all good things to seek the Lord in, of course. But the direction John takes this is simultaneously convicting at the content of my normal prayers, and also incredibly encouraging because of the power that he speaks of. And I hope as a church, we dwell on this and are shaped by this charge of, of how to direct our prayers, what the contents of our prayers should look like. So read with me in verse 16. John says, If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Did you catch that? After laying the foundation of confidence that we have in going to the Lord in prayer, John immediately directs our hearts outwards, not inwards. And to what? What does he point us to? He points us to the holiness of our brothers. This means that we're to care about each other's holiness. But how can we care about each other's holiness if we're hiding in sin from each other? If we're, we're only putting our best foot forward, if we're only allowing our brothers and sisters to see what's good in us, or what we perceive as good even. Probably even within the last week, all of us have had some form of this exchange on, on both sides. How are you doing? Great. Good. Awesome. See you later. That's such a common thing in our world. And we can get stuck in that, and we can just have that default response. Yeah, I said great, but I, you know, I'm struggling with this, and I have hope in this. But we rob ourselves of, of seeing that. And can a, a brother and sister who asked you that question and heard that quick, good, great, everything's good, can they really pray for you in this way if they don't know the, the challenges of your heart? Are you equipped to pray for them if that's how they respond? Compare that general check-in question with some of these questions. Ask, what sins are you putting to death? How are you fighting to trust Jesus more? How is your marriage? In what ways are you actively teaching your children, your wife, your husband, your friends, your family, your co-workers about who Jesus is and what his grace does in a broken world? I'll be honest, these questions more often than not terrify me on either side, whether I'm asking them or being asked. But think as a body, what would our lives look like if these questions were commonplace? 
And if these questions in our body led to clear prayers and petitions to the Lord, we need to know our brothers and sisters, and we need to know their hearts, not just to be an accountability partner. That can be a helpful thing, yes, but it pales in comparison to the power of going to the Lord in prayer. Instead, in knowing our community, we're to turn to God, as we see in verse 16, and if we ask, God will give them life. We could pray, Jesus, you desire to stamp out sin in our lives. Help him to trust you and turn from these idols. Someone were to pray for you, God, help him not doubt to not doubt your promises. Or Lord, she is bought by your blood, yet her flesh is telling her that she needs to wrestle control from you every day. Help her to live in your peace. If someone prayed for your family spirit, bring about a joy in their home that is rooted in your truth and spreads throughout their neighborhood. In order to pray like this, in order to pray for our body, for our brothers and sisters in this way, it's crucial that we must know each other. Now, if you're like me, also reading through the second half of verse 16, it stands out where John includes an addendum to his call to prayer. He shows a, a distinction between brothers committing sin that does not lead to death and others, not specifically referred to brothers, to as brothers, committing a sin that leads to death or sins that lead to death. I've been thankful uh, to get to preach this week and through this text specifically because it's pushed me to dig deeper into this. And there are a few different interpretations. I'm certainly not claiming to, to have the, the clear, clearest on this, but there's a part that I do think is, is helpful to us now. And I do want to, as, as in any instance where we as a body or individuals read the word and, and have a question or, or doubt about maybe what it's saying and it seems contradictory or, or confusing, I encourage you guys to dig in further. Um, John Piper has a great video that's helpful, but also just, just looking at what we know in the Word about sin and death and, and how that leads and the assurance of Christians, all of that will strengthen your faith if you dig in further. So I definitely encourage you guys to. I was thankful for that in preparing. Uh, but for today, the, the main thing I want us to see from this, and I think it's an important piece of what John is saying, is the reminder that there is sin that leads to death. All sin is idolatry, and we've all earned death in our rebellion to God. It's truly a, a sobering interjection that, that John includes. The sin that leads to death here doesn't seem to be a specific sin. Uh, while some would, would claim they're the seven deadly sins or something like that, that's not a biblical idea. Uh, all sin is deadly. Um, but, but instead, it's not a, a nondescript sin where maybe just God knows what the, the extra special sin is and he's just waiting to, to cut you off if you commit it. No, I, I don't think that's in view here either. But throughout the gospel, we see that Jesus' atonement is sufficient to cover all manner of sin. But for those not clinging to the promise, even uh, the most seemingly harmless sin for those not cling, clinging to the promise is an affront to a holy God. And without the protection of Christ, we are condemned by our conduct. Even our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. But then elsewhere, we see that God's heart does pursue the lost. 
So why would John suggest that we not pray for them? If you read in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6, it says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who know all who are in high positions, that may, they may lead peaceful and quiet life, or that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And then also look at, at Luke 19.10, where it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So knowing all of this, John doesn't appear to be prohibiting prayer for unbelievers, but it seems like he's warning against intervening for those who have utterly rejected and perverted the gospel of Jesus. While John makes no explicit prohibition against such prayer, we do see God in Jeremiah chapters 7, 11, and 14 respond to the wickedness and idolatry of Israel and command that Jeremiah not pray for the people. I'll read from Jeremiah 7, uh, 7 11, and 14. Which those chapters all have kind of similar structure, but uh, looking at, at 7 from Jeremiah. As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, which is a false god. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I who they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. You see, the people of Israel were treating God and his temple as just another god. They were worshiping him along with all other false gods and idols, and approaching him as a genie, even chanting uh, things to, to God as if they could control what he would give them in return. The people claimed the identity of God, but they did not know him, they did not worship him, they did not love him. They blasphemed his name and invited his wrath upon themselves by worshiping idols. And so here, God restricts Jeremiah from even praying for them because their rebellion is so direct to who God was and who he was calling them to be. So John uh, was aware of false teaching within the church, and that's been addressed some throughout our, our look at this book. Uh, and so he was intent to call it out, to, to warn others of the dangers of turning away from the truth of the gospel and following these false teachers. And possibly in mind for John were the uh, secessionists who believed that Jesus' death was not necessary for salvation and the atonement of sins. They were telling the lie that sin is not deadly. So here, John reminds us, it is deadly. Verse 17 gives yet another reminder that all wrongdoing is sin, 
There's no way around it, and we should not lighten the seriousness of our or others' rebellion. So now, uh, going into to verse 18 through 20, there are three consecutive we-know statements uh, that are really just a beautiful summary of what we've studied in the book of 1 John. And I'll read each, uh, each one of these and offer kind of a, a brief summary of them as we move along. And so first looking at verse 18, uh, John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So John is saying, we know that Christians do not continue to sin, but that Jesus protects us from the devil. And so as, as we've looked at through the book, uh, John, John even clarifies before, he's not saying that, uh, that Christians don't have anything to repent of, that we don't, don't act, actively sin, but we're not marked by sin. That the, the thing that marks us is a life of repentance and relying on Jesus to make us whole, to, to bring about holiness in our hearts and redemption. And that, that's not going to mean that we're perfect, but it is going to show that we're relying on his grace, that we're going to him, that we're acknowledging our sin. We're not persisting in sin. And so then in, in 19, he tells us we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that we are God's people. This is my, my summary. We know that we are God's people, that he is our father. This is our family. Yet we are in a world that is bent on sin and destruction. And then in, in verse 20, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So here, John tells us that we know that Jesus has come into this broken world. He's entered into this broken world and has made himself known to us. He's not a mystery. We know what truth looks like, and he's, he's the very personification of truth. And not only that, he is eternity. He is eternal life. He is God. So as, as believers, if we are part of this family, if we are in Christ, then we have him. We have truth. We know truth and we have life. That is, is just a beautiful summary of the book, those three statements to, for us to, to remind ourselves. We know this is true. This brings us to the final verse of John's letter. He says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I want to, to first set our feet in place uh, in the place that John leaves us, and uh, where he says, little children. It's such a, a tender and sweet moniker that holds great weight, though. He has just encouraged us in faith and reminded us that we are of God, and he's challenged us to love one another more diligently. He calls us little children. That's just such a sweet thing to see, the tenderness that, that he has to fellow believers. And he leaves us with one final charge after that, that tender call, a strong charge. He says, keep yourselves from idols. Now, Jesus tells us the parable of the prodigal son. He is a, a father who seeks the lost, and he is calling us into his family. And yet, he is God, and he is a God who is holy. It is not safe to treat his mercy lightly. 
we do not know a specific sin that can uh, that we can just avoid and even if we did we would fail to avoid it with that attitude instead we are given warnings not to turn our gaze from what is good and true and beautiful we're told don't look down don't look away keep your eyes on Jesus and do not worship false gods do not worship false idols and just to clarify, false gods, that can seem like a foreign thing to us. We have false gods. We have things that we turn to in adoration and worship, things that we, we look to and hope that those will give us life. Even if we don't verbally express that, even if we don't offer burnt sacrifices, I'd be surprised to hear if anyone was, but we, we offer sacrifices of our time, of our money, of our devotion, of our affection, of what we aim our family at what we delight in most, what we fear most even. And so as we go out today, as we, we close, I know that I'd mentioned some questions for us to be asking each other in community. And I think those can be really helpful. Uh, these are questions to help us know our brothers and sisters more intimately. And from that knowledge, to be able to pray more diligently for each other in light of verse 16. But there's a, another question that came to mind as I prepared. A question that I think is even more important. So you, you guys remember at the beginning I talked about the low head dams. Um, and I, I talked about how its greatest danger is in the fact that so few, few people actually feel threatened by these. They don't uh, have big raging waterfalls or loud rapids. And it's not like the, the large hydroelectric dams where just walking up to the edge of it, you get queasy seeing the, the incredible drop and just the, the reality you're confronted with, that one step over and you're done. There's none of that all connected to these dams. They're a deceptive danger. And so it is with our hearts and the secret idols that we keep. Jonah 2.8 says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. We have hope of steadfast love, and yet throughout the week we chase after idols. Maybe uh, your family can become an idol. Maybe your fear of others' approval or, or fear of man is, is an idol. How well are you fitting in with the culture? Are you up on the latest trends? Are you um, being mocked by others for your faith? Any one of these things can be idols. We, we make idols out of baseball. We make idols out of having a clean home. Those, are, those can be good things, um, but our, our hearts make them into things that we find contentment and hope and identity in above the work of Jesus. So we convince ourselves that we can withstand them, that they're not dangerous, that we can outswim anything. But the warning is, is true, that these things will devour us. They will turn us away from the steadfast love and hope that we have in Jesus. The question that came to mind in preparing that I really think could have a huge impact on Midlands Church as a body is if we were to, to ask this question regularly of brothers and sisters, to ask, what idols do you see in my life? Tell them, I, I can't see... Clearly, I can't see it all. I, I have blind spots. All of us do. And ask them, I tell them, I need to know what I'm missing. What are the things that I guard, that I cherish, that I hope in, that I delight in, 
that I fear, that I'm anxious about? What blind spots do I have that, that, that I'm just not seeing? And in asking them, next ask them, please pray for me in these things. That I would have life in this area. That the Lord would, would put to death my idols, my sin. And that I would proclaim him all the more in this area. See, as, as Christians, we can ask a question like that, an incredibly vulnerable question, because our hope is not that we're perfect. Our hope is that Jesus has done the work, and our delight is secure in him. And so with, with the rest of our days, we can look honestly at our deficiencies. We can see our fear of, of approval, of getting approval of other people, or our desire for that, and we can, we can submit that to the cross. We can say, that's a gross thing that leads me to manipulate relationships and different things. But I'm freed from that in Christ. So how can I walk in that truth more diligently? And to have brothers praying for, for us in these things will be such a gift to our body. And we'll, we'll proclaim Christ to those who see on the outside that humility of acknowledging, yeah, we're not perfect. We need Jesus. He is the only grounds on which we can confidently say, my eternity is secure in the hope of Jesus. I have eternal life. We can say that without being a braggart, because we're bragging not in ourselves, but in his work. So uh, again, just just thank you guys for uh, today, for, for uh, the elders, for allowing me to preach. I love getting to do this and getting to uh, dig into to a couple verses with you guys. I know it's awkward and strange being apart, but I, I do long for the day when uh, when we can be together more uh, more closely. So continue to pray for the elders uh, through these decisions. I know they've um, taken, taken so much care in leading us through these week-by-week decisions even. So continue to pray for them and uh, look forward to seeing you guys maybe next week. Thanks. I'll, I'll close us in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for um, your goodness, Lord, that you do give us the words of First John, Lord, that we um, are challenged by these ideas of, of what it means to persevere, to, to stand confidently in your promise of eternal life, Lord, what it, what it means to, to pray to you with confidence and to lo- align our wills with you. God, I pray that we would... Um, as we, we go out this week, we would be marked by these words, Lord. We would be marked by a confidence in your work and not our own. And Lord, that as we interact with people at work, at the grocery store, neighbors, Lord, that that would overflow into conversation, that, that we would be a people um, of Midlands Church who, who neighbors might think they're crazy for believing that, but man, they, they're humble and, and they acknowledge their need, and man, they, they love me so well. Maybe there's something true to it. Lord, Lord, help build your kingdom through, through our hearts, Lord, that we would be glorifying you in how we submit and how we love you and how we tell your story of redemption over and over and over again in our lives, Lord. God, I pray for uh, our body. Thank you for your mercy and allowing... Uh, allowing us to endure this season relatively unscathed. I, I pray for those who have uh, come in, in contact with COVID, that you would 
continue to, to bring healing and allow them to, to get through this. We thank you for your mercy through that, Lord, that it has not been as severe as, as some feared in our body. Um, but Lord, we, we trust that it's only you that, that keeps us breathing each day. So we ask for your grace and mercy to continue to give life. Lord, we pray this all in your name. Amen.